because it has been far too long since we have had an episode from the one Jeff Schaefer, who is the director at the Hell Institute at New St. Andrews College. That website is hellinstitute.org, hellinstitute.org. I recommend you go check out the website as well as attend New St. Andrews College because it's awesome. Not the end. So recently, I've just discovered the three different types of smokers. You have the cigarette smoker who has got to get his quick hit. Come on, got to get it, got to get it because he got to go back to work. So go outside, smoke three minutes. You're done. All right, back inside. And it's cold. Go smoke. The fast guy who needs his quick hit. And then you have cigar smokers. This is usually a boss move. It's the guy that's like the godfather. Yo, come over here. Let me talk to you for a second, Tony. Never disrespect the family. <sighs> that guy. And it's usually a boss move. And there's nothing wrong. There's a conversation. It takes a little more time to smoke. And there's a larger conversation going on. It's great. Has it place. But then there's the pipe smoker. And as soon as I say pipe smoker, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Yes, I know. Gandalf. Gandalf or an old man with a lot of wisdom who is going to instruct you and give you kind of the, the game of life, right? Or he's going to think through the strategies. This episode with Jeff Schaefer at War With Words is like a good, wise wizard smoking his pipe, giving you understanding and calling the plays of the game so you can see how to engage. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to digest this like you're just... You know, in the middle of something like a, like a cigarette smoker. No, 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 no. I want you to find a place where you can reserve 30 minutes. You will not regret it. I promise you that after this episode, you're going to reserve three or four times to have this 30-minute conversation from Jeff play over and over again because there's so much content in this. So find your spot for the next 30 minutes to really inhale some good pipe smoke. So without any further ado, and I have lots of ado, Jeff Schaefer, at war with words. Among the prominent curiosities of our teetering social order is that our leading institutions have descended to such moral and spiritual vacancy and have so proficiently blinded themselves to the profundities of human nature that they now, in catechetical form, declare that a man who says he is a woman is a woman. Now, of course, by that, they vaporize both of those categories, as well as renounce the entirety of human civilization through all time, whose structures depend on and defer to the momentous male-female binary and its adjacencies. And of the innumerable episodes on display at the moment that we might consider for a discussion on this point, we'll start um, looking at some matters related to the case of the male NCAA swimmer Will Thomas, who has taken to calling himself Leah Thomas and who has declared himself to be a woman. Again, such is the blankness of our universities and of the regulatory mega-institution that is the NCAA that they have together prostrated themselves before Mr. Thomas's announcement of his femaleness. Then they have put paid to their deviance by facilitating his invasion of female swimming competitions. They likewise have held the door open for him, so to speak, into the women's locker room. And because there's apparently no one in authority in the relevant sponsoring institutions having the sand either to say or do anything about these effronteries, that task has been taken up by one of the victims, female swimmer Riley Gaines, a former member of the team at the University of Kentucky, who had to share competitions, the awards stand, and the locker room with Mr. Thomas. 
Miss Gaines, unlike the institutional bureaucrats, has the mind and spine as well as love of neighbor to say the obvious, namely, that a man is not a woman, and specifically that Mr. Thomas is not a woman, and that he should not be competing against women and trespassing and disrobing in their changing rooms. And for this form of charitable refusal to bear false witness, Riley Gaines has been repaid with threats and violence, and among other things, was once held captive for several hours by a howling mob. But so far, so customary. All of this is just another day on the circus stage of the fancy institutions of contemporary America, where signs of advanced rot congregate and abound. And though we're all accustomed to this, there are persons on the other side of the fault line who don't like this so well, and some of them are even U.S. senators, like the admirable and articulate Senator Josh Hawley. A few weeks ago, Senator Hawley questioned Riley Gaines in a public Senate hearing about her experience being mistreated by the NCAA and others. And it was when watching this good work by the senator that he then startled me, specifically when he rather inelegantly, though deliberately, decided to nullify in principle his own stated concerns as well as the ordeal and the advocacy of Riley Gaines. He surrendered the very thing that contains and holds in place the truth. Words. He gave in on pronouns, and he did this of all times while speaking to Riley Gaines. Let me give you a chance to respond to something that Leah Thomas said recently, publicly, this is... Um she said this publicly. No, he did. In another positive development that was unwittingly, it seems, stained by some fraught vocabulary, uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals last week issued a most welcome and well-argued ruling that permitted the state of Tennessee to continue to enforce its recent law that forbids medical abuse of minors by means of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. A lower court in that case had earlier issued an injunction ordering the Tennessee Attorney General not to enforce the state law. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, with majority opinion by Chief Judge Sutton, put a stay on that lower court order. And I bring attention to this case for the reason that, in Judge Sutton's otherwise admirable opinion, he strangely included certain terms that gender ideologists made up precisely to avoid and disqualify from personal identity the realities of human physicality. Judge Sutton determined to write of boys and girls not in terms of their bodies, but instead in their being cisgendered. Some months back, Lionel Shriver observed that trans advocates' creation and use of cisgender is a premier example of winning an argument without the bother of actually having one. The insensible idea behind this newly minted name is to classify every one of us in terms of the deviance of gender ideology by locating our identity not in the objectivity of bodies, but in our mental states. Therefore, some of us, the so-called cisgendered, passively submit to the morphological features of our bodies and, as a result of that invisible mental determination, become and are male or female, at least as long as we maintain that particular mental state, while others, the braver and freer, I suppose, make a mental commitment to an identity not meekly subservient to the irrelevant features of the identity-meaningless body. Those are the trans. In both cases, whether one is so-called transgender or cisgender, identity is an emergence from the subjectivity of mind, not of objective and given physicality. And regrettably, Judge Sutton succumbed to the use of this now-trendy term in his opinion for the court. 
He also employed the nouveau trans phrase, gender affirming, when describing the drugs and surgeries that Tennessee forbade to be applied to these minors. This phrase is a linguistic misdirection that intends to cast the damaging and incoherent cross-sex medical assaults on the body instead in a positive light, as affirming. Now, it's already peculiar to apply a psychological description to pharmaceutical and surgical batterings. The same can be said for these medical abuses themselves. But all the more defiant is this affirming description when applied to acts of physical and ultimately cultural brutality and mayhem. We will return to this trouble and others in the trans field a bit later, but our point here is to consider words. Words anchor a culture. They are the depository for the wisdom and observation of generations. A community is found and its world is expressed through its language. To destroy a community requires that its vocabulary be abducted. Chesterton, for good reason, suggested that words are the only things worth fighting about. And Nietzsche, part right here, proposed that far more depends on what things are called than on what they are. We'll look now at some illustrations from the abortion field. You know this. It is particular to our time of sexual familial upheaval that a pregnant woman officially carries a fetus rather than a child. The word fetus has served powerfully to reorient our legal constitutional system and public moral culture. From dimensions personal to jurisprudential, this word fetus soothes and justifies. In 2006, I was in the courtroom of the United States Supreme Court during oral arguments treating the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. And Solicitor General Paul Clement was arguing in defense of that statute, and at one point he denominated the child, subject to the abortionist's lethal ministrations, as a, quote, child. And General Clement's use of this offending word did not sit well with Justice John Paul Stevens. To permit entrance of the word child into the discussion suggests that the half-birthed entity is a vulnerable human person thus meriting our solicitude and the protective affection of the law, an idea to which Justice Stevens was emphatically opposed, prompting him to intervene and put forth that the right word is fetus, not child. More on that in a moment, but first, a quick explanation of the subject matter of the congressional statute that the court was evaluating that day. Um, in that law, Congress had criminalized what's called partial birth abortion, which is, as it sounds, the abortion of a partially delivered infant. The crime is carried out in the following way, the child being half-delivered, uh, feet first, face down, but head not yet delivered. The abortionist jams scissors into the back of the neck under the base of the skull, then opens them up to enlarge the hole into the interior of the cranium, and then inserts through that gape a suction tube used to vacuum out the victim's brain, uh, thereby permitting the collapsing of the now-emptied skull, making easier the full delivery or extraction of this human-shaped thing that Justice Stevens insists be called a fetus. I mean, after all, imagine if this savagery were applied not to a fetus, but to a child. In such case, it would be the kind of horror that government not only may, but must forbid and penalize. Therefore, did Justice Stevens feel compelled to halt the Solicitor General of the United States in mid-sentence and correct his word choice? Here's the audio from that portion of the argument. 
the issue is very important because it's the issue as to whether it's going to be performed in utero or when the child is more than halfway outside of the womb. And that, of the course, corresponds. The fetus is more than halfway out. I'm sorry? Whether the fetus is more than halfway out. And some of these fetuses, I understand, in the procedure are only four or five inches long. They're very different from f- fully formed uh, uh, babies. Then Justice Scalia threw a well-deserved elbow at Justice Stevens. When it's halfway out, I guess you could call it either a child or a fetus. It's sort of half and half, isn't it? Nicely put. General Clement replied. I think you could use either terminology, Justice Scalia. My point is nothing turns on the terminology. Well, that is, strictly speaking, true for purposes of the statutory interpretation point he was making. But, as he surely also knew, and as Justice Scalia certainly did, the game that Justice Stevens was playing was for higher stakes than interpreting a statute. He was going after human nature and defending the abortion empire. And in that endeavor, the corruption of words is essential. And it's enacted like this. An abortionist doesn't kill a child. He eliminates a fetus. And behind the shroud of this consoling distinction has been carried out the slaughter of tens of millions. And this contestation over the benchmark vocabulary is customary in this field, in the written judicial opinions, that is. A few years ago, there was a footnote nested back and forth between Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg in their respective written opinions associated with the court's per curiam ruling in the case of Box versus Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky. In Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, he discussed in a footnote a certain proposal as to, quote, the mother's right to abort. Justice Ginsburg, in a footnote in her written opinion, corrected him. She wrote, quote, A woman who exercises her constitutionally protected right to terminate a pregnancy is not a mother, end quote. So same word, different meaning. For Justice Thomas, mother describes an office and natural relation quite apart from the wish or choice of the woman. It's an embodied reality. On Justice Ginsburg's redefinition, mother is not a reality. Rather, it is a classification individually initiated in a woman's mind by act of choice, which is another way of saying that motherhood is a disembodied status of individual will, which of course means it is operationalized by and ultimately subject to lawmakers' contingent rules. More later on where that idea leads. And here we might also consider the abomination emitted by the Kansas State Supreme Court a few years ago in the case of Hodes and Nauser versus Schmidt, in which the court majority, six to one, ruled unconstitutional the state law criminalizing dilation and evacuation abortions, or D&E abortions as they're called. The court majority alerted us that it had discovered a woman's right to this particular form of barbarism in Section 1 of the Kansas Constitution's Bill of Rights, which was enacted, by the way, in 1859 when abortion was a crime in Kansas. That constitutional provision reads as follows. All men are possessed of equal and inalienable natural rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's an intriguing formulation for an abortion manifesto, I think. But the Kansas Supreme Court justices evidently have unique powers of discovery and can see in texts what the rest of us cannot. Well, a less credulous observer might conclude that what the court in fact sees in words is opportunities for manipulation and control, these having only the significance that judges give to them. 
But on the other hand, the Kansas court majority showed keen sensitivity to the power of words by scrupulously avoiding words it disliked. For instance, the court majority employed very briefly some cryptic euphemisms for the D&E abortion procedure they were sanctifying as an expression of the inalienable right to liberty. Indeed, the majority even avoided in most cases the word abortion, defaulting instead to a, quote, decision on, quote, continuing a pregnancy. The dissenting justice described this evasion by the court majority as, paraphrasing Orwell, naming things without calling up mental pictures of them. In contrast, the legislature that had passed the law forbidding D&E abortions and the dissenting justice arguing for the propriety of the law's prohibition each recited the graphic details of the abortionist's dismembering of the child in the D&E. Indeed, the dissenting justice castigated the majority for its imagined world, one in which, he said, the liberty bell rings every time a baby in utero loses her arm. So the dissenting judge and the court majority each evinced the same awareness and implicit message, that being that it is intuitively known to all of us that the integrity of the human body is, in fact, a vital feature of legal concern and justification. Though each side revealed that awareness in inverse ways, the dissenting justice did so by graphic description, the majority justices did so by silence and evasion manipulating its word selections to deflect attention from the barbarity of its accomplishment. Now to a quick observation on civil marriage redefinition. A prominent goal and achievement of the Supreme Court's Obergefell ruling and opinion included the capture and redefinition of the word marriage. It was not merely to require some sort of comparable legal treatment between husband-wife unions and same-sex partners, but for the category called civil marriage to be emptied of its meaning, tethered to physiological realities and procreation, and redesigned into an abstract status of sentiment and emotion, that is, lifted from the physical world and abstracted into the non-viscous arena of mind, thereby loosed from restraint and boundaries." Maggie Gallagher once, I think, helpfully observed about this revolutionary theft of the name marriage from husband-wife unions. She said it is decidedly harder to communicate an idea for which we no longer have any word. Barbara Defoe Whitehead years before had pointed out that this sort of thing amounts to what she called cultural hardball for, as she wrote, language, or more precisely, normative vocabulary, is one of the key cultural resources supporting and regulating any institution. So Chesterton's point on fighting over words is well taken, and this particular fight is one on which to engage, as it implies everything central to our meaning as persons. The war against communication, this uh, corruption of words, is again a frontline aspect of transgenderism's refusal of created reality. And because trans ideology is an epitome form of defiance of truths, both immutable and utterly basic to human life and society, the trans effect on the social climate necessarily is one coercive and oppressive and requires a population-level confiscation of words and a manipulation and control over speech in order to secure its position. 
so deep and wide and entrenched in human awareness and in cultural artifacts of every conceivable sort is the male-female acknowledgement. It explains the frenzy into which our elite class has sunk in gunning for the overthrow of the sex binary and the truths of physical existence. They've declared war against all the world, history, civilization, God himself, which is why they now lay claim to the dictionary as well as why they demand a whole month each summer, devoted not only to social acclamation to the chaos of public lewdness, but also for its army of scolds enlisted from every imaginable perch to instruct us into their replacement vocabulary. A superlatively instructive episode, which I often invoke for that reason, is uh, presented by a notorious case out of British Columbia, Canada. In that case, a father sought from the court an injunction that would forbid doctors to inject his 14-year-old daughter with synthetic male hormones. The court refused. In its response, the court's order not only ensured the continued pharmacological bludgeoning of his daughter's female frame, but also, and no surprise here, as this is an indelible aspect of the program, the court forbade her father to speak to or about his daughter by using her given female name or otherwise using words that would identify her as a female or as his daughter. The court called his daughter his son whatever that word might now mean, and then ruled that uh, this child be granted a new male legal name and corresponding male legal status, the wishes of her father, whatever that word might now mean, being vacant of any legal relevance as far as this court was concerned. So this child is not anymore a member of a family. She's just the wandering property and scribble tablet of the state. Her claims and prerogatives are adjudicated and dispensed by judges, whose chief regulatory function in this particular context is to enable constituents to escape and defy what once were the family's protective authorities of belonging and relatedness. Since male or female are ultimately fluid mental states for acquisition through free choice and then judicial and bureaucratic delivery, rather than being an objective feature of human nature, revealing a given identity and calling, the idea of family, along with its certainty and its authority, is simply impossible. And again, the methods of this overthrow depend prominently on the control of language. Roger Scruton has written critically of what he calls newspeak, which he says occurs whenever the primary purpose of language, which is to describe reality, is replaced by the rival purpose of asserting power over it. He writes that newspeak sentences seem like an assertion, but in fact, their underlying logic is that of the spell. They conjure the triumph of words over things, he writes, and carefully avoid any encounter with reality or any exposure to the logic of rational argument. Well, let's consider another aspect of this inversion effort. The new vocabulary mandate is not merely depraved. It is, being counterintuitive, something of a challenge to catch on to in the first place. And as to this difficulty, we'll consider an illustration, once again, from one of our Supreme Court justices. Uh, but before that, a word on the case in which all of this arose. 
this is the Harris Funeral Homes case. It was consolidated with two others and argued at the United States Supreme Court in late 2019 and then ruled on by the court in June of 2020. This case presented the question of whether the federal law contained in Title VII that forbids employers to discriminate against employees because of sex also forbids their employment discrimination because of employees' transsexual or transgender comportment. Now, courts for 50 years had been answering that question with a decisive no. But in view of the way the winds have been blowing in the last number of years, that previously settled interpretation of the law became unsettled and thus ended up in front of the Supreme Court for resolution. In in the Harris case, the funeral home owner terminated the years-long-serving funeral home director, Anthony Stevens, after he had announced that he would be coming to work dressed as a woman and otherwise presenting with a female persona and using the name Amy. Understandably, the owner determined that this sort of display would not comfortably fold into the distraction-sensitive environment of a funeral home that serves families during their time of grief. Well, after being released from employment, Anthony, now Amy Stevens, brought a Title VII lawsuit against his former employer, and the question was queued up as to whether the owners terminating him for his announcement that he would be publicly defying the reality of sex itself could be classified as an act by the owner of sex discrimination, as forbidden by federal law. As mentioned, the case climbed the appellate ladder to the Supreme Court. Now, during oral argument, Justice Kagan was addressing the attorney for the funeral homeowner and dutifully stated that Ms. Stevens, as Justice Kagan called him, was subject to termination because of, quote, her sex. And here what uh, Justice Kagan meant when saying her sex was Mr. Stevens' male sex. And that's where things get tricky. But before getting into that, let's first listen to Justice Kagan's statement to the funeral home owner's attorney about how she understands the way Title VII should apply to this case. It's as simple as looking at the language of the statute, applying it to a particular individual, which Title VII insists that you do, and coming up with the obvious answer. The idea that Justice Kagan next wants to put forth to the attorney is as follows. If Stevens had not been a man but instead a woman, he would not have been fired for announcing his plan to come to work in a dress, presenting as if a female. Thus, Justice Kagan proposes, Stevens' firing was discrimination on the basis of sex. Now, the challenge for Justice Kagan is that her point depends on Stevens being a person of the male sex. But for Justice Kagan to say that or allude clearly to Stevens' maleness would be to violate a cardinal rule that is operable in the world today, and particularly so in the elevated and fashionable social strata in which Supreme Court justices are located. It is verboten to identify a person as a man once that man has identified himself as a woman. In such circumstance, the new language mandate is not just that we describe that man's present persona as female, but also that we erase his past life and recast it also as female. In this case, that would be required, notwithstanding his over five decades of obvious maleness in his observable characteristics and his relations as husband, friend, employee, and so on. So how can Justice Kagan pull this off? How does she get the idea across that Stevens was fired only because he is a man and wouldn't have been fired if he were a woman without Justice Kagan saying that Stevens is a man and not a woman? Well, let's see. And coming up with the obvious answer. Yes, if she 
the vocabulary problem has now occurred to her. Uh, 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 had not been uh, a bio. That was a close one. She, for a moment, considered referring to the physical reality of Stephen's body. As you heard, the word biological started to leave Justice Kagan's lips, but she yanked it back in before the remainder of the syllables could escape. As she recalled just in time, that physical reality itself is precisely the matter that must remain unnamed. So what other options remain to make her point? Uh, had not been uh, a bio... If she had not been assigned at birth the sex that she was assigned at birth, she would have been treated differently. Well, thanks be to the glossary innovators for ginning up the absurd assigned at birth neologism to save the day. But in all events, mastering the new idiom is no easy task. Consider the episode here. This is the exceedingly intelligent, talented, and eloquent Justice Kagan. U.S. Supreme Court Justice, former dean of the Harvard Law School, former Solicitor General of the United States during the Obama administration. If she be so reduced, what hope is there for the rest of us of more modest intellectual endowment? Now, as to this uh, sex-assigned-at-birth proposal, there is a special absurdity here in Justice Kagan reciting what she and everyone else in the courtroom knew to be false. That is, that in the delivery room many decades ago, some doctor or nurse or midwife's vocalized or written sex classification of Stevens when he was an uncomprehending newborn infant was the decisive consideration in his boss firing him 50-some years later. Justice Kagan, like everyone else in the courtroom that day, didn't believe this for a moment. But she, like everyone else, knew that her resort to that fantastical utterance does two important things. One, it serves as a kind of performative obeisance to the mandates of trans language capture, thereby showing that she both represents and is working to advance progress and enlightenment. And two, this phrase serves as a proxy for the idea that Justice Kagan indeed wants to communicate, but cannot actually bring herself to say, because of the fierce and swift comeuppance she would suffer for doing so. That is, that Stevens was fired because he is a man, who announced he'd be dressing and presenting as a woman. And Justice Kagan Kagan's real-time struggle that we heard highlights for us a couple additional matters of significance. One is that the nature of the trans program is such that its public survival requires this obnoxious disqualification of our perceptions in deference to the obvious, with a corresponding overhaul of our common language, severing its connection to our awareness of irrepressible truths of human nature. Secondly, and mournfully, is the display of a startling compliance, even in high places, and even when it reduces its otherwise brilliant and articulate participant to awkward lurching and manifest equivocation. Well, in June of 2020, as I said, the Supreme Court issued its decision in this case and the two others that had been consolidated with it under the caption of Bostock versus Clayton County. The majority opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch, and its basic justification was the one raised by Justice Kagan, as I've described. Now it's for another day for me to give attention to the multiple outrages delivered in that ruling, uh, but for the moment I'll simply mention that Justice Gorsuch, another jurist of immense talent and impressive intellect, nevertheless descended to gratuitously rewrite the history of Mr. Stevens' life as if he was, and always had been, a woman. Thus, Justice Gorsuch described him as her, she, and Ms., 
noting that she, through the years working at the funeral home, had, quote, presented as male. Now, the effect of this description being to imply this inversion, that any maleness associated with Stevens through time was the act. It is femaleness that was the reality. So again, our point is just that the mangling of language is a necessity. Words must be victimized if the cultural reordering is ultimately to be successful. And once the old words and definitions are gone, the upheavalist deed is done in principle. Thereafter, it's just a matter of wearing down the social traditions that no longer have the words by which we can defend and sustain them. The essence of the transgender ideology revolt is a human fade into meaninglessness. Its medical and linguistic crimes are enactments of the ideal non-physical nothingness into which it consigns us all by definition. Just as giving up on the word child or marriage, so also to capitulate on pronouns is not an act of charity or politeness. It is instead the total surrender of the world by means of a word.